Good morning, brothers. Whoa. <laughs> Testing. We've had the rain. There's the thunder. We talked about the, uh, the church meeting in the hymn book. Are there any Moravians here? Anybody have Moravian ancestors? No. Look at there. We got one. Moravians. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, the author of that hymn that we just sang. Any Germans? Yeah, okay, that's better. Um, Zinzendorf wrote that hymn that we, we sang, Jesus' Blood and Righteousness. And you may not have heard of his name, but you've certainly heard of the Wesleys, and you've heard of George Whitfield and, and uh, Gilbert Tennant and others, and they, uh, they looked to Zinzendorf for a lot of inspiration for their preaching. And uh, what a tremendous hymn, Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness, My Beauty Art, My Glorious Dress. That's our, and that's, again, our focus in this book. It's the focus of the whole book that God has provided the absolutely perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for us in Christ. We're looking at, and we're covering ground we've already, we've already covered, but I'm going to come at it at a different angle this morning. So look at it with me in chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be reading verses <clears throat> 1 through 10. <clears throat> for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, Yes, we know there's a flood. All right, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold... I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, before we forget, we do pray for these who are seriously affected by these storm warnings, these uh, flood warnings, people who live in low-lying areas, especially the poor. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would have mercy on them today and show us where uh, we may be of, of uh, merciful help in such situations. We thank you, Lord, for your word to us today that is a flood of good news, an overwhelming flood of good news. And yet I'm sure, Father, there is at least one brother, maybe several, 
who feel overwhelmed by life, who feel like the psalmist that, uh, that uh, they are sinking beneath the flood, that they are entwined and that they're drowning. And I pray, O oh Lord, that as this rain comes down and nourishes the earth and doesn't leave without providing bread for food, seed for the sower, that your word would come down in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and would bring your appointed purpose, that you would convert, that you would encourage, that you would lift up, you would give new hope, that you would convince of forgiveness, convince of adoption. Lord, we pray that you would unleash the power of your word on us today. In Jesus' name, God's men said together, amen. When uh, my daughter was little, one of my twins was very little, she was uh, especially attached to her mother, and uh, being a pastor's family, they had no choice but to go to the nursery, and uh, you know, we had no, no option to be afraid of the nursery, as can be common today. But uh, they, and by the way, they have, they have, uh, if, if any of you is afraid of the nursery, putting your kids in the nursery, here's the benefit. My kids have the immune system of a Sherman tank now. <laughs> They're never sick because every week they got what they needed and uh, they were slowly inoculated against every conceivable disease. But uh, she was nervous about going to the nursery <clears throat> and uh, she'd cling to her mom and her mom had things to do, I had things to do and so uh, I had a picture of her mom in my office, and in desperation, I said, why don't you take your mom with you to nursery today? Well, that was a brilliant idea. She thought, yes, I will actually take my mom with me. So she grabbed this picture, and she hugs it like this, and week after week, she would take that picture with her. Eventually, she figured it out. The picture's not mom. And mom is really better than the picture. And uh, this, this, the author of Hebrews is telling us something similar. We're using these, these this kinds of terminology, shadow and reality. That God, uh, throughout the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, He came down among His people in an, uh, an objective way, that is, by signs and pictures with the temple sacrifices, the ceremonial year, and so forth, the tabernacle and its furniture. But we not only wanted more, we needed more. Because those, those sacrifices offered continually, year after year, only made our consciences more guilty. They only frustrated us that we needed more. And and it made us aware, too, that we are estranged from a personal God. And, uh, and it was a life or death matter because we're seeing this blood spilled all of the time. And so there's only one way that that personal relationship was going to be restored between a personal God and us as persons. And that was for God personally to solve it. So we've seen that in numerous pictures throughout these chapters already, haven't we? The construct of the temple, the, the description of the sacrifices, uh, the, the focus on blood, the focus on Melchizedek as a priest. And here 
but here the author comes to the, to the high point, the most energetic, the most emotional point of his sermon. Remember I, th- I said at the beginning of our time of study to get to, together that this was most likely a sermon. And uh, by the way, it was the ideal. You can, you can read this through in Greek in 50 minutes, which must be the inspired length of a sermon. But here is a sermon, and the preacher gets to the, uh, the high point, the climax, the emotionally uh, charged point of his sermon, and he is pounding home this theme in chapter 10. It is finished. It is finished. It is done once for all. Once for all, the perfect sacrifice has been made. So... What I want to do this morning is, since these phrases, since every every phrase we have we have read, we have studied in some way already. I'm going to dial back a little bit and teach some theology by means of other passages, and maybe show you from a different angle just how beautiful the substitutionary work of Christ is. We're going to do it in, in, in this way, by looking at the active and passive righteousness of Christ. Our need exposed in this passage is that we need perfect lives. We can't live with God unless we are absolutely perfect. We can't achieve that on our own. So, we must accept the perfect sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for us in his life and his death if we're going to live perfectly with him forever. So I want to look at his active, the the passive righteousness that Christ provided for us, and we're going to do that generally under verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to look at the active righteousness of Christ provided for us uh, in verses uh, 8 to 10. And I'll explain what those words are mean uh, as we go along. But first, look at this phrase, just this one phrase in our text in verse um, in verse 5, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Now, uh, that is a quotation you might see in your footnote from Psalm 40, verses 5 and 6. David wrote that originally. It's David who says, originally, initially, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. However, if you were to go back to Psalm 40 in your ESV version or maybe some other versions, you might read this, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but ears, or you have made me to listen, or literally, ears you have dug for me. So you say, now, now wait, somebody made a mistake. Is the Bible, does the Bible have an, is this an example of a, an error in the Bible? Well, it's not. It's, it, it happened like this. There, the Hebrew phrase that is translated here in, in, a Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 10, the original Hebrew phrase, remember the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek. The original Hebrew was, if read literally, ears you have dug for me. And so interpreter, translators, English translators, not knowing Hebrew turns of phrases so well, said, hmm, it just says, 
ears he has dug for me. That must mean that uh, he's talking about listening well. You know, God has had to Q-tip out our ears. He has, to, he has to open up our ears in order that we might listen well. But the Old Testament was trans before we translated it into English, the Old Testament was translated into Greek into what is called the Septuagint. Hebrew translated into Greek by Hebrew scholars, men who knew Hebrew, men who had overlapped with speaking Hebrew. So when they read that phrase, they understood what it meant. That though it's translated literally, you have dug ears for me, it refers to the creation of the body. Now you say that doesn't make sense. But how many of you understand what it means when we said today, it's raining cats and dogs? Doesn't say, oh yeah, it is raining cats and dogs now that I think about it. Now what if somebody came from another culture and they're learning English? Oh, it's raining cats and dogs today. They'd be terrified. Well, it's a similar thing here. So these Septuagint translators who translated what we, and so, so the New Testament quotes the Septuagint. This Hebrew writer is not going back to the Hebrew Bible. He takes out his Greek translation of the Old Testament, and he puts down a body you have prepared for me, which then informs us that Psalm 40, verses 5 and 6, should be translated, a body you have prepared for me. And then you get to the beautiful point. That as, as David is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, Lord, sacrifices and offerings you have not prepared for me, a, bo- a, a body you have prepared for me. Okay, yes, you've created, yes, you've created my body, but... As we often find in David, he's saying something far beyond himself. A body you will prepare for my Messiah because he must make a bodily sacrifice for me. Isn't that beautiful? It's what we've been learning in Hebrews uh, already that God has from all of eternity designed the way that we are going to be redeemed. It's just not a, it's not a, it's not a plan B, but he's saying from the beginning, this is the way you, you, you will become estranged from me, but this is the way I'm going to save you. I am going to come personally in a body and I am going to take the penalty that was due to you for your sin in my body. And that's how we get to passive righteousness or as some theologians say, penal righteousness that the one form of righteousness that we needed in order to be reconciled to God was that someone, a human being, had to substitute bodily in our place and take in himself the punishment, the legal punishment due to us for our sin. Now, what I want to do is do a little survey here of where this comes up in other scriptures. This isn't just here, but... We need to go to other scriptures, and let me teach you something else along the way here. When we, when we uh, are uh, developing theology, when we are interpreting passage, uh, scripture, it's important to interpret scripture, one scripture, with other scriptures. 
Uh, in other words, it's, I'm glad we've provided a commentary for you, and that's, it's good to go to commentaries. But our first stop has to be to Scripture. This Scripture says this. Okay, I'm not quite sure what it means. Let me go to another Scripture that talks about a similar thing and see if I get further insight. And you stop first in the book where you're reading. So I'm first giving you a reference to another passage in Hebrews, and then we will go out farther into other books of the Bible, and we will interpret this one scripture, this idea that Jesus had to take on himself our penalties, and we'll bind all, we'll gather up all of these scriptures together, and we will arrive at this point that Jesus had to passively receive the guilt that was due to the punishment that was due to us for our sin. So the first uh, additional place we look is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. <clears throat> These are the several things that Jesus did for us in becoming this perfect sacrifice, this perfect sacrifice of passive righteousness. He suffered God's wrath. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. How many of you, just out of interest, have a different Bible that reads expiation instead of propitiation? Anybody? Good. Because that's a, that's a, a, a faulty and even dangerous translation, and yet it became popular at one point uh, in, the, in the latter part of the last century by theologically liberal uh, theologians who said, you know, this idea of propitiation is offensive because propitiation means satisfying, it's satisfying the wrath of God. Pro means moving towards something, Right? And so if it's, it's describing someone has to be moved toward, someone has to be appeased, someone is angry and they have to be placated, they have to be satisfied, and that was God. God was angry at us for our sins. His wrath was kindled. It was balled up into a cannonball of furious judgment. And it was hurled at the earth and caught in his son. Now some in, uh, in, the, in the latter part of the, in the, in the 60s and 70s, so 50s and 60s, substituted propitiation for, or expiation for propitiation saying, you know, that's an offensive idea. We don't want to talk, we don't want to tell people that God is a wrathful God. He's a kind, he's a, he's a nice God. And so what we want to do is, is, is describe the way he removed sin. He took sin away from us. He expiated it. He took it away from us. Well, he did take sin away from us in Christ, but only after Christ had satisfied the just punishment of his righteous anger. Propitiation is used in other verses. I think I've given, I haven't given you the other verses, but Romans 3.25 1 John 2, 2, 1 John 4, 10. And those verses are describing not a God who remains angry unless you remain in your sin. 
unless you try, if, you're, if you insist on uh, making yourself right before God, He is forever going to be angry at your sin. But these verses present the good news that because Christ suffered the wrath of God, you will never suffer the wrath of God. Secondly, Christ was made guilty in this passive reception of the judgment that was, that was hurled at our sin. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Uh, Russ prayed in his prayer about this, <clears throat> this what uh, Martin Luther called the great exchange where our sin was imputed or laid on Christ. He became guilty with our sin. It became the magnet for the wrath of God. And the wrath of God attacking and punishing his sin enabled him to impute or transfer his righteousness to us so that God sees us through the righteous vindication of Christ. The third thing he did for us is he was condemned as a criminal. Uh, There was... uh, God, the way Jesus died was divinely and eternally ordained. So we have this this, uh, verse in in Deuteronomy that pronounces, it says, if someone is hanged on a tree, someone is nailed to a cross, that is an indication to you, Israel, that that person is cursed by God. Now, it kind of appears strangely in the middle of all of these Old Testament laws, whoever is hanged on a tree, whoever is nailed to a cross is cursed by God. But when we come to the New Testament, we understand why he wove it into redemptive history. He wanted everyone to recognize that his son had become cursed in our place. Galatians 4 says it, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Well, the, authors, the, the, the recipients would say, where did he become a curse for us? Remember, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is part of the unspeakable pain that Christ endured on our behalf. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cursed me? I've been your son, and for all of eternity, we've known nothing but felicity as father and son. I have delighted to do your will, and now you've turned your face from me. I am guilty. I am experiencing sin that I have never encountered in my life, and now I am enduring the wrath and the curse of God. Finally, he's made an enemy of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, and through him that is Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As long as we are outside of Christ, we are not only enemies of God in the sense that we don't want God, but God is our enemy too. And for us to be reconciled required Christ 
becoming an enemy of God in our place. When we say, when we confess in the Apostles' Creed, crucified, died, and buried, he descended into hell. The focus of that creed is not spatial, as in where did he physically go? Did he physically go or even spiritually to the place of hell? But it is a description of what he experienced on the cross. He experienced what those who die without Christ will experience for all of eternity. They will experience the pains of hell, which will not just be the licking flames, but will be the eternal experience of, as an enemy of God, cursed by his law, condemned as a criminal, and suffering his wrath. And all of that Christ experienced on the cross that you might not have to. The way to avoid it is for you passively to receive the righteousness that he earned by passively taking the wrath of God. Passive righteousness. But that's not all we needed. We needed more than someone just suffering in our place and taking penalty. We have to be made perfectly, actively righteous. We have to be made perfectly conformed to the law of God. So if you take just one of the commandments, it's not enough that Jesus should be punished for lying. He has to provide a, a substitute record of one who has never told a lie, a truth teller. So if we're going to stand before God and be acquitted righteously at the great day, at the judgment day, if he is going to say, come, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, receive the inheritance prepared for you from the foundation of the world, if he's going to say, you are righteous, we have to be viewed not only as one who has been, who has been punished satisfactorily for lying, but one who we have to have the record of one who has never told a lie. And that's what Jesus has done. Look at it in this. First of all, in our text, we go to the original text first. Where do I get that? Verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. I have come to do your will. Not only the will will that has been prophesied for me, but I have come to do all of your will in every part of the whole of Scripture. I have come to fulfill all the Ten Commandments and all of the implications of the Ten Commandments. Those of you who are Presbyterians know about our catechism, shorter catechism, and when we go through the, when we teach through the Ten Commandments, we ask two questions. We ask one question, what duties are required in the Ten Commandments? And then there's a long list of things that are not just required on the surface, but the implications of them. Honor father and mother. Okay, yes, it does mean your biological father and mother, but it also applies to every authority in your life. Every authority in your life you are to honor. And then we ask another question. What, what, uh, what sins are prohibited, forbidden by this fifth commandment? 
Well, it is any form of rebellion. It is any and untangles all of the implications of the commandment. Jesus said, I came to do your entire will. Not just the Ten Commandments, which are the, is the spinal column for all of the ethical demands of Scripture, but I came, to, I came to fulfill every conceivable implication of those commandments, what is positively commanded and what is negatively prohibited. So is that taught in the rest of Scripture? Well, first we go to passage in Hebrews chapter 2 again. And we can only fit so much of it on the slide. If you want to look at the whole, you can look at chapter 2, verses 10 through 18 of uh, Hebrews, just back a few, a few verses. And the first thing we learn is that Christ provided this active righteousness, that is, he became actively obedient to fulfill all of the implications of the law, and he did so in the same kind of body we have. He didn't wave a magic wand as a spirit and say, okay, I'm, uh, I'm pronouncing you innocent. No, he came, he moved into our flesh, he took up our bodies, and in order to provide the same kind of righteousness, he said, with physical lips, I'm going to tell the truth. With a physical brain, I'm not going to look and, 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 and fantasize on sexual images. With my eyes, I'm going to look at righteous things and away from unrighteous things. With my hands, I'm going to work. With my feet, I'm going to move mercifully toward people. He did all of that for us, and here it's described in Hebrews chapter 2. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation <clears throat> perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I will tell you of your I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I'll sing your praise. I'll put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong suffering, slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make what? Propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself was suffered when he, tempt, when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's endless applications there, but I want you to see that your Christ, if Christ indeed is your Savior, moved into your flesh in order to live the perfect life in your place and fully identify with you, not only in the struggle you have against sin, but in all of your struggles, and he remains in that body so that he can truly empathize with you with every difficulty, every pain, every struggle, every suffering you have. You may know that when you bring it to Jesus, he can really say, I understand. Secondly, <clears throat> he obeyed the law that we have in becoming our active the substitution for our active need, our need of active righteousness, 
he obeyed the law. We have the same law. God didn't make an exception for him. He was, as Galatians chapter 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, there's that incarnation again, born under the law. When he was born into this world, God made him responsible to obey all the same laws that we are responsible to obey. Why? To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then thirdly, he lived, died, and rose again in order to make us obedient. He made a sacrifice, he made a substitution to fulfill righteousness on our behalf. But now he, because he moves into us, because he did that, he now moves into us and helps us to become who he has made us to be. Look at how it comes out in 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Not a period there, a comma. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died, he lived and died in our place so that we might also die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, I didn't write these verses down uh, and put them on the slides as I thought about them as I was driving here this morning. I want to fill out this part just a little bit because now you're, you may be asking, well, what is my responsibility in obedience? If Jesus has done everything, Jesus has taken all of the penalty so that there is no wrath of God for me ever to suffer hidden in Christ, and if Christ has fulfilled actively my need for obedience, then I might as well go and do whatever I want to do. Well, for one, it's impossible. When Christ moves into you, he's, not going, to, he's going to live his life out of you. But there is this tension still. Where do I exercise my will? And, and, and then on the other hand, where does God take over? Well, the short answer is I don't know. God takes care of it. But here we get some hints in Scripture of how it relates. So one of those hints we could get in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where uh, Paul says, talking about the Philippian salvation, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Ah, okay. Paul, you're telling us that you've been telling us that our our righteousness is, is provided in Christ. Christ has done everything for us, but whoa, now you're telling us you still have to obey. Oh, but Paul, we find it so hard to obey at times. Well, Paul doesn't finish. He goes on, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I want you to obey. God's going to work it out. He says a similar thing in Ephesians chapter 2. You know the first two verses I'm going to read very well. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not as a result of works so that no one can boast. Whew, I'm so glad. I'm not saved by works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, there's a debate we're not going to get into in detail, but <clears throat> there are those who call themselves, sometimes Calvinists are pitted against Arminians. And so, I'm a, I'm a Calvinist, I believe in the, in, the gospel, in, the, in, the, in the doctrines of grace. But if someone who identifies himself as an Arminian tries to pick a fight with me, I say, you can't pick a fight with me because I have all of your verses too. Those verses that you like to go to that work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, uh, obey the Lord. Created to do good works. Those are my verses too. But you've cut yourself off from the rest of my verses. This is the rest of the Bible. Yes, I'm called to obey. I must obey. God holds me accountable to obey. And then he tells me, I have given you everything that you need to obey. I've, I've moved into you. I've given you faith. I've given you the Holy Spirit. You are my workmanship, and I have created good works that I am going to cause you to walk in. Does it mean that we're not going? Of course we're going to sin. It's not God's fault when we sin. But the overall trajectory of a Christian's life is one of obedience because Christ is living his work out inside of you. And we have not only a catechism, in the Presbyterian Church, we have a confession, and the confession of faith written by pastors, you can tell it's written by pastors because they, they anticipate the kinds of questions their parishioners are asking, and their parishioners would ask their pastors like this, oh, I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a, I don't want to obey, and they say, no, you have to obey, you must obey, if you're a follower of Christ, you must obey, and then a parishioner would come and say, I want to obey so badly, but I don't think I'm, I'm ever going to be obedient. I don't think I'll ever make it. Oh, yes, you will, because God is going to encourage you. They encourage him. They would, they would uh, sometimes challenge him with the law of God, and they would comfort them with the promises of God. And then when asked, how do these two relate? How do you, when you're, when you're not obedient, how do you become obedient? And the Puritans would say, the writers of the confession would say, you've got to stir up the grace that's in you. You stir up the grace that's in you. Well, how do you stir up the grace that's in you? By doing things like you're doing this morning. You go to the means of grace, the sources of grace. You sit under the teaching of God's Word, and God by His Holy Spirit takes that word and He works it in you and He convicts you of sin and He enables you to do what you're supposed to do. He gives you a new resolve to do what you're supposed to do. It's by going to worship services. You can't substitute. This is no substitute for worship service, by the way. By sitting in worship services, by not only hearing the word taught, by experiencing it in community and receiving sacraments. Christ makes you obedient in ways you never would have been otherwise. Another means of grace is prayer. Lord, I can't love that person on my own. Enable me to love that person. He'll help you do it. I, by confessing our sins to one another, by fellowshipping with one another, by praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us. 
I met with a preacher yesterday. And the preacher said, you know, the Holy Spirit did something for me recently. He said, uh, my wife wanted to go on a, a mission trip, and I didn't want her to leave me. And I was sitting in a worship service, and the Holy Spirit said to me, you're being selfish. She lets you go on mission trips you want to go on, and you don't want to let her go on your mission trip. He said, the Spirit came on me. I couldn't help but repent. I had to go back and say, please, go on that mission trip. That's the way the Lord works out His will in us, causes us to be obedient. And He wouldn't have experienced that, perhaps, had He not been in a worship service, hearing the Word preached and applied to Him. He, made, he drew near to the means of grace and put himself in a place where the grace could be stirred up in him. What good news that Christ has provided us everything we need, not only, not only to, to, to endure the judgment day, but Christ, because he has died in our place, taken away the wrath of God, and substituted the love of God, and because Christ has fulfilled righteousness for us, and He is enabling us to become who we are, He is enabling us to live obediently in this life. He's enabling us to do His will, to accomplish His, His work in this life, participate with Him in redemption, so that when we appear in heaven, He will say not only, you're good, you're acquitted, He will also say because of His faithfulness in us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have done what I wanted you to do because I enabled you to do it. You know, there's some parts of the gospel that are just impossible to illustrate. <clears throat> you can only illustrate them partially. And this is one. Let me come in it this way. One of my elders in the church I came from uh, had been uh, a drug dealer before he came to Christ, and that drug dealing landed him in prison. Uh, he was charged with a felony. And you know when you're charged with a felony, you can't vote and you can't run for public office. There are certain occupations that you're prevented from ever uh, entering in. A man from our church who was a chaplain at the prison came to him one day, shared the gospel with him and came to him over a, a long period of time and led him to Christ. And because of good behavior and because of his leadership in the prison, he got out uh, early on probation, but he forever had that felony on his record. And when he was released from prison, he had a burden for his city. He wanted to, he wanted, he, he went back to all of those drug dealers, all of his, all of his uh, customers, and, uh, and, and, and went through all the honky-tonks he had been into, black and white, and he was witnessing for Christ. And, and then the Lord started using him to do community development. And, 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 but, and then he, he saw, you know, there's, there's this, but there's this cloud over me. I am forever a felon. I can't even vote for the things that would bring justice to this city. And his pastor, one of my predecessors, I'm not sure if he even knew about it, my predecessor wrote to the governor of Georgia and uh, related what, what progress this man had made and the things he was doing for this city, and the, and the governor pardoned him. He took away his record. You look him up in the, you look up his name in the, in the record books, there's no record of a felony. He could vote. 
He became a city commissioner. He's become a very significant leader in that city. He was, he was pardoned. But you know what could never be done for him in that legally speaking? He could never be made actively righteous. He's still done all those things. Nobody could go back for him and instead of turning right to go into the Marine Club, he would go straight by it. Instead of turning left to buy drugs on the corner of Broad Street, he would go buy it. Nobody could do that for him except Jesus. And Jesus has done it. When the records are opened in heaven, there will be no record of his buying drugs at the Marine Club or selling them on the corner of Broad and Fifth. There will only be the record of Jesus. That at every point there was an option to make a wrong turn, he made a right turn. And everything that he would have suffered in terms of judgment against his sin has been taken away. And it will be true of you too when you receive Christ as your righteousness.